Welcome to the Life in the Stocks podcast, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Matt Stocks. I'm the host, and the show features unedited, in-depth, candid conversations with a wide range of musicians, actors, comedians, and creatives. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to Life in the Stocks on your favorite podcast platform. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and indeed all major podcast platforms. Be sure to give me a follow on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as well, at MattStocksDJ. That way you can keep up to date with all of my live Q&A dates, my DJ performances, and of course, who's coming up on the show as well. But without further ado, let's crack on with the show, shall we? Here we go. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. What's up, Jim? How are you, dude? I'm doing great. How you doing? I'm doing very well, man. Very well. Tell you what, your album's amazing. I um I went in with, I'm going to be honest, just like kind of no expectation. Well, kind of a, a set expectation. I thought, I know what this record's going to be. It's going to be kind of like punk rock, acoustic, you know, stripped back Pennywise songs. And it was not that at all. I was so pleasantly surprised um, I mean, this is a huge compliment because I love the guy. It reminded me in places of like Randy Newman, and that might be a stretch, but that was the kind of vibe I was picking up. Yeah, that's really cool you should say that because there was a, a much older guy, a guy named Roger Miller. He, he did a song called uh, King of the Road, and yep. it's kind of like this like, I don't know. It's almost like traveling salesman music or, or like the minstrel type of uh, kind of vibe to it. And um, I always really liked uh, singer songwriters like Jim Croce and Harry Chapin and stuff like that. So I knew this thing was going to catch some people off guard because it's not all middle fingers in the air and, uh, you know, your typical Pennywise fare. But um, that's what I wanted. You know, it, it would be very easy for me to put out an album of acoustic Pennywise songs and maybe we'll do that at, at someday and, uh, that might be cool, but this is very much, uh, a batch of songs that I've been writing over 
20, 30 years. So it's it's definitely going to be all over the place. So that's how far back some of this material dates, is it? This is stuff that's been percolating for, you know, since you started in a band. Yeah, you know, even before that, uh, one of the songs is called The Basement, and I wrote it when I was about 15 years old. And uh, was it was it in any part inspired by the Ramones? <laughs> I knew people were going to say that, but I think there's a lot of people who made the choice at about age 15 that they couldn't live with their parents or their sister anymore without losing their sanity yeah. or uh, or being brought up on assault charges somewhere. So uh, the, the decision to move down to the basement or another section of the house, whether it's an attic or a basement or a storeroom with all the bugs and, and uh, vermin is a better choice than uh, than uh, having to engage too long with, with the family members. So I'm at that age, I moved down there and had my guitars, my surfboards, my skateboards, and it was kind of like moving out. It was really cool. And I wrote the first song I wrote was kind of about that whole thing and, and touched it up for this album when I found an old recording of it on an old cassette tape. And I thought that was a perfect bookend for the album to have songs that were written right when I first out before I'd ever joined a band or anything, first picked up the guitar, all the way to songs that I wrote right before I recorded the album. So it's a it's a pretty big span of years. That first tune, Palm of Your Hand, when was that written? That is a beautiful song, man. Uh, Arrangement-wise, it's lush, great melody. Um, from the get-go, I was just hooked right off the back of that track. Is that a new one? Is that an old one? Where does that come in? That's a perfect example. That's one that I've had... Um uh just the riff for and the and the the chorus lyric and and melody line for just that part of the song and um over the years i've written songs and obviously wrote a ton of pennywise songs but there are always times where i'll be standing there with the guitar and playing a riff and i go this is a really cool um riff but it doesn't sound like Pennywise and Fletcher will never play this, you know? <laughs> and so um, that particular song, I, I thought it sounded like an against me song or a, or a, a dropkick Murphy song or something like that. I actually titled it against moi. <laughs> Amazing. That was the working title. Was it? <laughs> that was the working title because it just didn't sound like, it sounded more like against me. And I had, I said, maybe, I thought to myself, maybe I'll give it to them someday. See if they can, do something with this riff and this melody line. Have you and heard then, Laura's solo album very quickly? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, it sits I, I, in a similar space to yours. I think there's definitely some, some overlap and parallels sonically. And yeah, you know, I think a lot of what we're doing is really singer songwriter stuff. And, you know, in, in our, in our loud amplified bands, it, it sounds bigger and more anthemic, but there is, you can still be, have a, a song with emotion and feeling and make it be very heartfelt just with your acoustic guitar. And it's, it's cool to see that change. You know, I, I just didn't want to be doing like a, a pose, you know, in this thing and like, and Jim's going to come out with some Irish, uh, folk songs you know I, I am a little bit irish i'm a little bit i'm a full-on mutt so i i could have done something like that but all these songs are very much very personal and some are storytelling type of songs but you know i think people like laura 
people like, uh, you know, Joey Cape and, and Tony Sly was great at it as well of using the acoustic albums to have another different feel from what fans are used to getting. And just like he said, you know, I couldn't be happier that people were caught off guard by it. And in fact, one reviewer said that they, they planned on hating it before they ever heard it. So, uh, and then came around and said they loved it. So that, that's a huge win for me. Yeah. Much to their chagrin, they were like, oh, this is actually really enjoyable and good. <laughs> Lars is at it as well. I mean, his is kind of more of a Billy Bragg thing where it's like electric guitar, but no other accompaniments. But it seems like, I guess, you know, we've had this time, haven't we? The pandemic's got to be a big factor in this i know that's why laura put out her album gives you that space from touring and that perhaps need to create and put out something in this time when you know everything else was ground to a halt was that part of it as well for you was that kind of the window for you to get into the studio was the pandemic and the lockdown time yeah absolutely uh you know that's why the album is called songs from the elkhorn trail i have a place uh my parents had a place out in the desert uh which is kind of a a shabby uh, vacation spot, but it's it's very quiet and it's a really a, a getaway place. I live in uh, at the beach in Los Angeles in Hermosa Beach. It's completely crowded and out of control here. And there was so much going on last year. It, I mean, everyone knows it was the the craziest thing most people have ever been through. I know it was for us and our family and our community and. I just recently lost a, a good friend of our community just uh, um, last Wednesday who battled COVID for a year and finally succumbed. And it's been it's been a nightmare. You know, everyone knows that. Um, and but there were times over over the over the course of the, the pandemic where it just being able to get away and 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 work on songs was very therapeutic. And before the pandemic, I, I um, lost my father to Alzheimer's disease. So there was a lot of emotion. And my dad was extremely supportive of my music career um, when, uh, you know, not a lot of other people were. And he bought me all the gear to, to become a musician and encouraged me to quit my job and go on tour. So losing him to such an insidious disease was really a, uh, a difficult emotional thing to process. And going out to the desert, I'd have so much peace and quiet instead of all the distractions that you have here at home, you know, you could really dive into it. And and I think uh, there's a lot of people out there that had that same thing of like, hey, man, usually we're we're in airports, we're, we're booking tours, we're talking to agents, we're, we're, we're figuring out where the next show is going to be. And we didn't have that for how long? 12 months, you know, more than that in some cases. So. Uh, it was a, it was some downtime that was you either had to make the most of it or you crawl up in a ball and watch Netflix all day and take bong hits or I don't know what what, what could you do avoid, yeah avoid Armageddon or slowly lose the will to live. Um, I've had a few friends in recent times who've you know lost parents to the same disease and yeah I've seen and heard firsthand just how um, devastating. It is, and I have heard you in a few other podcasts talk about how much of a positive impact your dad in particular was early on in your life, which I think is rare, isn't it? For your generation, I think a lot of the people who were drawn towards the punk scene were often from broken homes and more difficult 
you know, less supportive backgrounds. So it must have been amazing to have had, you know, such a positive male, you know, role model in your life and somebody that did have your back and push you forward and say, yeah, go on, son, get stuck in. Yeah. Well, you know, I think that was a testament to my dad's character and who he was. And I touch upon it in one of the songs, Don't Lay Me Down, that is all about him and his life. And there's one part where I talk about how when he was just a teenager, it was just him and his mom and his uh, sister, who was a year older. And um, they uh, came from pretty poor upbringings and kind of had multiple jobs. And his mom was a house cleaner and uh, his sister died in a tragic car accident going to see Louis Armstrong play uh, back in the 50s. And I just think that um, he they had so he had so much tragedy and hardship in his early life. He took his mom after his sister died. He took his mom, got in a car with some friends and moved to California to try and find a better life and ended up meeting my mom and having a family. And I just think that he was so... He felt so lucky in life that he had come from such such tragedy and such heartache and sadness of what happened with his sister that he just always felt like a guy who won the lottery every day. So he, he really encouraged me to to go to school and get my education and and really inspired me in that realm. But also was like, hey, man, go and enjoy yourself, you know, because life can throw some curveballs at you, like go and do what you want to do. And if you want to go, if you want to quit your job and go with your crazy punk band to Europe, you know, go do it. And he was just that type of person. So you can imagine how losing him to something like Alzheimer's and, and watching your parents go through that because they experienced this range of emotion towards the end that is anger intense he got he was pissed you know he took a swing at the nursing homes and you know and uh intense sadness and and then confusion and you're watching this person that you love and care about so much go through this and there's nothing you can really do about it it's it's uh, i've told people before it's like a freight train that's coming at you that you don't know that's coming and it just kind of knocks you over and and so that was an opportunity for me to take that song and just pour it all out all out at once of, of, of what my father meant to me. And, and that was his place that uh, the house by Elkhorn trail was his place. And he really loved that place. And that's, so that's why I knew the album had to be called that. Well, there's some real pain and beauty in that song. And um, your dad sounds like an amazing man, Jim, an amazing man. What an inspirational dude. Um, was he part of your, desire to start your own family obviously you know punk rock dad we'll, we'll sidestep quickly over to that the book you put out and then the the kind of subsequent documentary the other f word which was brilliant i've seen that a few times actually is i i'm not a parent but everybody i know is and as all my friends started falling I, i'd re-watch it intermittently to kind of you know get that perspective and try and understand a little bit about where they were at and so when you you know, because you, you married young, right? Did you marry like around the second Pennywise record kind of time period? Yeah, exactly. And um, it's funny because uh, I, I asked my dad what, what I was saying. I, I'm thinking about asking my wife to marry me or my wife, Jennifer, to marry me. And he said, well, Jim, you don't find girls like Jennifer laying on the corner. And that was his only piece of advice is like, she's a good one. And you don't find girls like 
her around every day. So I took his advice and got married and we have a great family. Um, all the, uh, my daughters are, are um, going to school and, uh, and uh, it's just been a very crazy experience. I can, that's the only way I can put it. And that's what the book was about. It was more joking because I've never considered myself punk rock. I think there's there's about three or four punk rockers in all of history, and it's like Darby Crash and Gigi Allen and Sid Vicious, and those are the guys who lived the, the punk rock dream. I, 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 Surely I, you're I, in a band with one of them, no? <laughs> yeah, I'm such a draggy and fat Mike. <laughs> but you know, it's like uh, I, you know, I. Uh, I'm a, I'm a dad at the end of the day. And, and the book was really being about how watch me screw up at this. I'm not, I'm not giving you any advice on how to do this. I'm saying that this is a crazy enterprise raising kids. When you're trying to be in a punk rock band, you're trying to go around the world and play shows and then go to the soccer games and the ballet recitals and, and deal with other parents who are, more twisted than you are you know they just don't happen to have a mohawk or green hair but um uh and so that was kind of a, a interesting experience i've always been really into writing and, and reading books and that was uh, a, just a, a really great way to put out that ideas for people to relate to and i've gotten tons of people that say like man you hit it on the head you know it's like i wasn't ready for it but at the same time i knew i had the ability if there's guys like you that I can read about to realize, you know, like, Hey man, you do your best, you know, just this is, but it's the most important thing that you really can't fuck up at. You know, you've got to, you've got to, uh, you've got to do your best to be a, a good parent. And that's, you know, it's so important. You can see a lot of stuff that's going on in the world is probably a direct result of terrible parenting. Yeah. A lot of the bad stuff. And it's so clear to see like what children need. And it's, you know, I think when you agree, like in a partnership to become parents, you should then do right by these offspring that you're bringing into the world, you know, and not just like think you can go about living the life that you were living before. Now you have this new responsibility. And that's what I like about that documentary is it really explores the emotional wear and tear that road life can have. Um, as well and that's something that I think is more focused on and, and highlighted nowadays but I guess for a long time especially pre-internet when you're touring without FaceTime and email and these methods of communication and you're away from your family for such long periods of time that's got to be rough right yeah it was terrible there was times where you know um I would talk to different guys on the road that had kids. I remember I was talking to Joe from Rise Against one day and we were both were saying about, it seems like day 17 on, on the tour where you've missed now two weekends of soccer games and, and, uh, and now you're hearing stuff from home and maybe you, you missed something where they got hurt or they had trouble at school or they did bad on an exam or, or something like that. And you're not there to, be supportive, you know, and it, it was really tough before FaceTime and Skype and all and exactly what we're doing now. You couldn't see their face or talk to them, you know. Um, so, yeah, there was some hairy times where a lot of us dads on the road, uh, then when you're experiencing that and you've been on tour for two, three weeks, then that that conflict that you have with the bass player or the guitar player or the drummer, it becomes 
a lot more like, all right, I'm, I'm on the lunatic fringe right now. And if, if, you know, I'm having enough trouble with my four-year-old, I don't need to, uh, to have a battle with my, uh, 40 year old guitar player who acts like a four year old, but, um, uh, you know, it was, you know, at the same time, I have to acknowledge that the guys were pretty understanding over those years of, of when each of us had kids and understood that there, we couldn't always do the two month tour, you know, or the month and a half tour. And it's, I think it's up to everyone in each individual band to decide how much they want to be away from their family and how much is worth it. And it's like, that's what I had to explain to the guys in my band at certain points of be like, Hey, you know, like I'm willing to go on tour. I'm willing to play shows. I really enjoy our band's success and, and all the fans that come out and see us, but it's up to a certain point where it takes a toll on my family. I'm not willing to be, have my family broken up over over this and unfortunately if you look around at all my peer groups of bands it's littered with divorce and alimony you know it's like it's hard and and that's you already in normal life i it's almost 50 percent of families breaking up but i, I think in the music world it's got to be more like 75 90 <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, yeah if you're if you're still married you're definitely in the minority i think and i take my hat off to anybody who especially when they're you know several decades in to a touring band and have managed to keep their you know relationship and family together is fletcher a dad he can't be surely <laughs> dad to some pit bulls is, is he got some dogs is it so you you guys all grew up together am i right in saying that hermosa beach was kind of where you all grew up and so you've known each other since you were kids um fletcher and i went to the same high school and the original bass player jason thirsk i was friends with since i was about eight or nine years old he lived on the next street over from me and next door to my best friend he was a couple years younger and, and so we had been friends since we were just young kids. And uh, he was why I wanted to get in the band. Fletcher, I started seeing around it in Maricosta High School. And there was just uh, at that time, uh, you know, right in those early 80s period, that's right when Descendants were started. They had just put out Milo Goes to College and uh, around that time and there was the first few people into punk rock going around the school you know it was a kind of a slow thing it was with sex pistols ramones and then there was a lot of other stuff and then black flag and then descendants and then circle jerks and it was kind of like this slow evolution around the town of like oh wow there's popular bands going to the same high school as we are you know was really heavy and, and i saw one day you know, so you'd kind of see around school, most of the school, you know, they were your typical high school kids. Whereas you'd see every once in a while, oh man, that kid shaved his head or that kid's wearing creepers. You know, that kid's wearing a weird sweater, fuzzy sweater. And that, oh man, that kid's, you know, and it was just a few people here and there. And I started wearing creepers and putting my hair in a pompadour and acting weird. And I saw Fletcher had shaved his head. He was a year younger than me, but, you know, certain people in his group started flying the flag, you know, uh, wearing army jackets and, and wino shoes and whatnot and going to and going to the shows. But 
you know, it, it, we were still pretty young. It was a hectic time and the scene was so violent, you know, at those first few Black Flag shows and the shows at places like uh, Sardis Ballroom and Godzilla's and and places like that. They were just like ridiculous. It, it was just like, you know, soccer hooligan stuff. You know, it was people just went there to fight, basically. And so a guy like me who didn't have any older brothers to to uh, watch out for me, it, it was tough for me to be involved in the scene too much. But yeah, uh, Hermosa Beach was like one of the craziest places to grow up. I've, I've said before, it was like having the Beatles and Led Zeppelin, you know, uh, hanging out in your neighborhood. You know, bands that were so big in your world, but they go to the same uh, shops and same school that you go to, you know, it was a trip. Uh, me and uh, I was in a cover band in high school and the descendants um, hadn't put out Milo yet. Uh, hadn't put out Milo Goes to College, but we were in the school newspaper together and the headline was local bands search for music success. It's <laughs> so the, great. I had yeah. Keith Morris and Bill Stevenson on the show and I gather that Bill used to work, I think it's this way around, Bill used to work at Keith's dad's tackle shop and yeah. stuff like that. And you're just like, and as you say, it's these era-defining bands that, you know, are just right there, like going to the same high school as you and shopping yeah. in the same grocery store. And I mean, it doesn't get much better in terms of inspiration than that. What I'd love to know is what drew you to punk, Jim? What was the the draw? If you're um, saying the shows were too violent, was it, was it the energy? Yeah, it was, was it the lyrics? What was what was the thing that sparked your interest? Well, I'll tell you what. I was born with a with an eye condition, uh, like I kind of like what people call lazy eye, or you know, had uh, strabismus. So, uh, from a very young age, I knew that I was somehow different. You know, the kids looked at me differently, and like were like like your eyes are messed up, dude. I had I my before surgery, my eye was turned in and just all messed up. And, um, and so there was a few years up to, I was about seven or eight years old where, and this happens at an early age where you feel like you're different. Mm -hmm. And the way that I, the way that I compensated was I was like, well, if you're going to look at me like I'm funny, I might as well act funny. And so I started just being the class clown and, and um, all my early report cards said like, uh, Jim's a, a smart student, but he, he's, intent on being the class clown. And so I would, I had no problem getting into trouble with the teachers. As long as I could make this guy next to me laugh or this girl next to me giggle, you know, I, I knew I was doing something right. And so I was, I was always getting into trouble at school and talking back to the teacher. And that's what punk rock sounded like to me. It sounded like Ooh, this guy's saying that. Like, I can't believe he's saying that. He's gonna get in trouble for saying that. And that's what I heard when I heard the Ramones. And that's what I heard when I heard the Sex Pistols. And and both of those bands, I like uh, read about in the paper or or just went and and found their album at the local record store and came home and put it on and met and was like, this is what I this is how I feel inside. You know, I feel like I'm not in step with everyone else and I want to uh, talk back. You know, I want to have my say and, and tell people I don't accept it, you know, and I've, I've always been 
And, and since then, I just, then when it came to high school and the age when it was time to join a band, I just knew that I, I answered the ad in a newspaper to, to join a local band and playing Clash songs and Soul songs, stuff like that. But um, it was, I knew that I didn't care what anyone said about me. It was like, I knew that there was going to be, when we played the first party, that there was going to be people that were going to, you know, say you suck and, 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 you know, whatever. But I also knew there's people there that were going to like it. And it just, you have to have that courage because there's so the people out there that, that want to give you shit, you know, are the ones that don't have the courage to do it themselves. And, and it's like, I found that from an early age of like, I think people, uh, they want to hear your say, they want to hear what you have to say, and they want to decide whether they agree with or disagree with it, but you have to have the courage to put it out there. And um, I think that from an early age, you can either decide, like, I'm going to, I'm going to curl up in a corner because I'm different and I'm weird. And so I'm just going to, I'm going to, you know, accept that definition of myself, or I'm going to fight back. I'm, and I think that's what uh, helped me get into punk rock is when I heard, when I heard uh, Johnny Rotten and Keith Morris, Keith Morris couldn't be a bigger influence. And, you know, from reading his book and his life story, that's exactly it. He was a smaller kid and got picked on and, you know, hassled, but he had a big mouth, you know, <laughs> and, and that's, that's what you hear on the record is, is him having his say and, uh, I think that's definitely what drew me to it. It's interesting because for me, it was your band and No Effects for exactly the same reasons, giving you a voice and you know encouraging you to question authority and think about the world differently. And um, that, there's a bit in Keith's book. Do you remember this when he's talking about getting crabs from the rug? in the practice room it's literally the most disgusting thing i think i've ever read like that is how dirty their practice space was back in the day that they got crabs from the practice room rug yeah that sounds right <laughs> i i worked i literally uh worked across the street from that place in the movie the decline of the western civilization that's at an old church i worked at a place when i was 15 across the street it was called altadena dairy it was a basically a, a store that sold, you know, it was like a mini shop, like a little 7-Eleven or, what, or whatever, um, and a convenience store. And I had no business running a store at age 15 by myself. And, um, and I, but I just wanted to be close to Black Flag. I knew that's where they practiced. And um, I just wanted to be near where that shit was going down. But, and so I could see that because there was hippies who lived in there. There was, you know, it was a disgusting place. And I, I think there was like satanic stuff going on. I remember going in there one time and hearing some weird chants and from the hippie side. So it was all, it was, uh, it was a strange, but to have that place, a church where there's also like weird stuff going on and black flag practices there. I mean, it was definitely uh, quintessential Hermosa Beach. You know, there was, Hermosa Beach has such a crazy history that there's, Hell's Angels motorcycle gang was was had its earliest origins here. You had Quentin Tarantino was at the at the local video shop. You That's know, where talking. that was. Was it was in Hermosa Beach? I didn't know. It was that. in Manhattan Beach, which is uh, the next town over where I live now. But right. it's all this small area we call the South Bay. These three cities, and so Quentin Tarantino worked at my local video store. 
Tracy Lords uh, uh, was a uh, uh, starting the porn hardcore porn industry in Redondo Beach. Um, so you had the hardcore everything was going on in the South Bay. And uh, we're trying to uh, make a documentary about this very subject, but um, uh, it's it was a crazy place to grow up. But it, it just also seemed normal. Like, doesn't everyone have this? Mm-hmm. You know, the the idea of boredom being a teenager was never in the equation for me. Like, like because I I, I, I know now after growing up, you know, I have other friends who they live in a town where there's just nothing going on. Whereas we had surfing, skateboarding, punk rock, you know, all this crazy stuff going on. It was just, it was almost like, you know, too much, you know, it's like too much information and, and uh, you know, you're kind of lucky to survive it, but um, yeah, it would be a good documentary someday. Hopefully we can get it made. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Did you spearhead the other F word film? Was was that your baby? Uh, How did that come about? Because I'm assuming it was sort of piggybacked off the back of your book. So were you like producer of that film or how did it come around? Well, that's going to be a whole other podcast. We'll do together. But, um, <laughs> it's uh, I want to write a second book or probably a chapter of my next book will be called punk rock dad goes Hollywood. 
Amazing. Because going into that world was, it made the, the music world look like a walk in the park, you know, uh, mm-hmm. of dealing with that crowd. And um, while I'm absolutely proud of the, of the film, it's definitely a testament, testament to the people in the film. And, uh, you know, everyone from Flea to Dwayne Peters to Tim from Rise Against and Mark from Blink-182 and all these guys sharing their very unique stories. Lars from Rancid. Um, uh, you know, the, I couldn't believe it when it was done. There was times when I literally, in Dwayne's part and when Flea's talking about being present for his kids, I cried like a baby. I was like, man, like... I can totally relate to this. The flea part was very delicate, very intimate. It was lovely. Yeah. And, and you can, can feel how real and honest he's being in it. And also Dwayne and, um, and even, you know, Mark from Blink-182 talking about how his dad took his, his, uh, descendants tape and threw it in the trash, you know, Mm -hmm. and, um, that's tough, you know, that's, that's um, all that it shapes who these guys were, you know? It, so it really was about our parents and then becoming a parent and how that works, you know? And um, uh, um, I just love that, that the whole film and how it came out, it was the after stuff of, of what people wanted to, so many people wanted to do stuff for it and then everyone wanted a piece of it. And then, you know, the, the Hollywood world I've always said they will uh, fuck you at breakfast and then take you to lunch. It's very much a, uh, you know, I'm going to screw you seven different ways, but Hey, we're all good. Right. You know? And, uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, so you're was, not, you're not in any rush to make another film then, or, or are you, would you like to get I, this Hermosa beach doco up and running? Um, I would, you know, if it gets to, if, if it finds the right home, uh, uh, then I'd love to do it. But definitely don't want to work with any of the douchebags that I had to work with before. Um, uh, that's an inside joke there that only they will understand. <laughs> but um, uh, there's definitely a story there from what you've yeah. just told me, and that even like the Beach Boys and all of that stuff as well, like. It's a hotspot, isn't it? Of of you, as you say, wild characters and like era defining creatives, and then just probably like characters and criminals and. Oh yeah, well that's another part of it is the whole cocaine trade here. Uh, with that movie Blow with Johnny Depp, if you watch that movie, great film. Um, yeah, they, we're we're just south of. Uh, LAX, Los Angeles Airport, we're only a mile south of that. So all these stewardesses and part and um, pilots were, were lived in the area to be close to the airport, but they were all living the swinging, you know, 70s lifestyle. Uh, they wanted to party. And so the, the desire for uh, marijuana and cocaine was super high here in the South Bay. And so it just took one hairdresser salon guy who was doing all these stewardesses hair to say like oh i could probably find a guy that can get us some more of that if you need some more and actually could we get a lot <laughs> and that's the Pee Wee herman character right that's who paul rubens plays in the film yeah 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 we need a lot of it could we get like kilos of marijuana and cocaine 
And so you had that whole scene. Like I said, I don't think uh, there's hard to find someone who's affected cinema more than Quentin Tarantino. And um, he, certainly he in the last 30 years. Yeah. Yeah. You know, as far as he started like hardcore filmmaking, I mean, that when you first saw uh, Reservoir Dogs or uh, Pulp Fiction, you're like, wow, this is a hardcore movie. Like, this is crazy. Like, who's letting him get away with this? You know, and then um, and every subsequent film after that, you know, you continue to be shocked by his output. But we remember him as the guy at the video store who wouldn't let you rent block, uh, Ghostbusters or he wouldn't let you rent the popular movie. He'd be like, no, you that's trash. You don't want to watch this. You got to watch this this Japanese film by this director. It's the craziest. If you want to see a horror movie, I'll show you a horror movie like you know, and, and he'd make you literally would, wouldn't let you rent your movie. He'd make you rent this other one. And I everyone that. knew like, like, God, I want to go rent a movie, but I'm going to have to deal with that weird guy that works there. <laughs> the <craziest laughs> like the thing. comic book guy in The Simpsons. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's who he was. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, the guy who co-wrote Pulp Fiction with him sat next to me at school. Uh, Lawrence, was it like oh, Roger Avery? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Guy who did Killing Zoe as well. He sat next to you in school. No way. Yeah, yeah. He taught. He he would draw really cool little um, uh, figures, and I copied his drawing style. But uh, he was the one who went to the Oscars and said he had to take a pee <laughs> during his acceptance speech. He's like, I'd like to say more, but I have to take a piss. <laughs> <laughs> so, so good, man. Well, that makes awesome. sense that it's right by the airport because I remember coming in from LA and there's Pan's Diner, isn't there? And that's where he filmed the Pulp Fiction Diner scenes. And that makes total sense being so close to it. That was probably a spot that he would eat at. And You know, it's so funny because you can tell from, from him growing up in this area and what he really loves about Southern California is it's called the Guji architecture. It's this this style that developed in the in the 60s and uh, 70s that is exactly pan's diner it's that space wanting to be space age and kind of neon and weird <laughs> you can tell that he loves how campy and corny and and like not cool it is but now it's it's totally come full circle like it was really cool when it came out. And then in the late seventies and early eighties, it looked so terrible. And now it's come back to being cool again, that they're, they're writing books about it. And, and mid-century modern is, is all the rage again, but it's, it's very, you can tell he definitely had a love affair with the Southern California architecture and restaurants and stuff like that. So tons of influential people came from this area and we were just kind of caught up in it. And, it, it's funny to hear people talk, you know, uh, about my band. And it was very much a later thing. Like we were in the nineties, we were in the, in the second wave that came after, and we were just kind of aping what, what they did. But um, it, it was definitely a, a influential place. You know, it's, I think there's, there's definitely meccas for punk rock and now it's spread around the world, but you have to count Hermosa beach in there somewhere. Yeah, totally, man. Well, you say you were like, you know, the second wave um, or maybe even third wave. I don't know how many waves there would have been. There's a lot of waves back then. But your peer group, your generation was certainly 
as influential, if not even more so in many ways, because you look at Offspring, Green Day, Rancid, No Effects, Bad Religion, Pennywise, and you guys were the school that, you know, took punk to the mainstream um, and, and allowed all the bands that followed to enjoy some of that trickle down from the industry and make a lifelong career out of this thing that was never built to last. Um, obviously, Epitaph was, you know, the home of, of not obviously Green Day, but all of those other bands. Um, you were right there. Am I right in thinking you guys are the only band that have remained with Epitaph? I know you did that one record with MySpace, but every time you put out an album on a label, have they all been with Epitaph? Have you guys been, you know, an Epitaph band since day one when you signed with them? Yeah, pretty much. Um, other people dabbled. You know, they, I think they had a relationship with Warner for a while where it was kind of like, let us give you some aid on certain albums when they come out. But um, you know, we definitely come out of that era. And I just read this new book called Sellout that was very interesting. That's about major labels and bands going to major labels. And, and there, you know, there's been huge successes, Green Day, and then uh, other ones that, that were just... Like uh, Jawbreaker, and, right? Just completely yeah, the just, other way. And one of my favorite bands of all time. And uh, I mean, that, that's just a perfect example of... Uh, hugely fantastic band where the politics just broke them yeah and, and um but it doesn't diminish their legacy in the sense that it's all about the songs to me it doesn't matter you know they, they that's you can't take that away from them you know it's like the songs are brilliant and uh and so um for us it, we were right in the thick of that. And it was very much, I guess, to us, it was a loyalty to Brett thing because Brett plucked us out of obscurity, you know, playing parties and uh, down here in the South Bay. And Fletcher was instrumental in that. You know, he went up a few times and made Brett listen to our latest songs a couple of times. And he eventually signed us. So definitely had a lot to do with Brett and us feeling like we had to have loyalty to him. And I know Rancid felt the same way. And, um, but at the time we were very militant about it, but now in hindsight, I definitely don't fault the bands that went and did their own thing offspring specifically, you know, of like, Hey man, if, if, if you're not getting along with the label or you're having issues or whatever, and you want to try something else, Obviously, it's about the Offspring songs. It's just, I'm happy that they got their great music out there. I sang on several songs later uh, in their career. And, and so... Which ones I, did you do? Was it on the Americana record you did a bunch of backing yeah. vocals? Yeah. I, I, Was that I, fun? I did the Go On Ricky Lake. <laughs> did you? That's you, is it? Amazing. <laughs> yeah, that's me. That's me and Jack um, from TSOL. Jack Grissom. Yeah, love it. And uh, who else was in on that one? Uh, God, can't remember. But yeah, he just had a gang of us come down. But it's nice get a little royalty every now and then. Do you? Little, a little uh, <laughs> piece of backing vocal craftsmanship. It's interesting. My friend Ian Winwood wrote a book called Smash, which was about that era and that time. Um, and he kind of speculated, and I think they almost admit to it in their own words, but it seemed like because Smash was so successful, 
but Brett just really, really loved Tim Armstrong and Tim seemed to be like his favorite songwriter. And it seemed like the Offspring guys felt like Brett was giving Tim more attention than them, despite the fact that Smash was selling so well. And that's kind of why they then went, we're going to go over here. Um, but is it safe to say that Smash was like the one that kicked it all off in terms of getting all eyes on Epitaph and allowing Epitaph to become the, you know, the major independent that it was? Absolutely. And, and exactly what you talked about, I was right there at ground zero for it. So I know that that was part of it, you know, and, it, and it's, it's difficult and, and we can all point fingers in hindsight, but um, I distinctly remember we took offspring out on tour and I was, and I heard their album and this all happened very quickly, you know, and. So what um, are they supporting you before smash is out? Yeah, but right. they were in the process. Um, so we took them out on this uh, one, our, one of our first uh, uh, nationwide tours. Um, and uh, they were in an old school bus that they had converted, but they had just they had just recorded Smash, but it wasn't out yet. But I had heard their I was listening to their first album. And I was like, man, these guys are great songwriters. And Brian just has a voice that it always reminded me of that band Boston. He's got a he's got a really wide range, you know, extremely strong voice. And I was like, man, they sound like they could be a really big band. And they said they said to me, uh, we're halfway through the show and driving to to uh, uh, up to uh, a show in the Northeast, and it was so cold on their bus that we it could snow inside the bus. <laughs> it was absolutely crazy. It was like. And they, they said, hey, they gave me a Walkman, a cassette player. They'll listen to our new album. And I listened to it on the headphones. And I, you know, that's all you, you, you guys titled it perfectly. This is going to be a smash hit. You know, I knew it from hearing uh, self-esteem and come out and play. And I'm like, this is going to be massive. And I came back to the show the next day at Soundcheck and I saw Fletcher and I said, the offspring are going to be absolutely huge. And, you know, like, there was no doubt in my mind. And, um, and uh, it was, you know, I mean, Green Day and Offspring, I mean, those guys just broke it open. And, yeah. um, and you know, it, it was, we, we also played with Green Day and it was the same thing. I saw them play and, you know, we played with a lot of bands, but there was bands that just stood out of like, of like, man, they've got the harmonies, they've got the songs, they've got the hooks. And at the time, being in, in Los Angeles, you know, we had K-Rock, which was one of the most influential music radio stations in the world. And they were basically, you know, listening to all the local stuff that was coming in. They started playing uh, us on uh, their pick of the week or whatever, and then different bands. And then when, when uh, Green Day and Offspring came out, it was game over. What was the first Pennywise tune that began to get some like radio traction or or video play or which was it and what was the song um well they first they played living for today i think on our first album which was i think they just played it one time and that was it because yeah. it was crazy fast i mean they could never play anything like that but i do remember that being the first epitaph band that they besides uh, rodney on the rock would have his had his punk rock show on late at sunday nights at like you know but they they actually put it in the daytime and it was like wow and i remember brett's eyes lighting up like wow they played a you know one of my bands 
songs in the middle of the day, like the, uh, on, uh, they call it pick of the day, I think is what they called it. But um, so that kind of people were like, oh man, maybe we could get some radio airplay. Like, wouldn't that be interesting? But then you, you also, at the same time, you had a little, that's when the backlash kind of started. It started to set in of like, oh, you guys want to be rock stars. You, you guys are sellouts, Brilliant. you know? And, and it's, it was now in hindsight, and, why, and that's why that book is so interesting. It's, it's so weird to be like, well, why did you take down Jawbreaker, but you didn't take down Green Day? You know, why did you, why did this band get, you know, put through the major label grinder, but this other band didn't, you know, and uh, it's interesting, you know, it's, it's kind of like what I was saying, punk rock dad goes Hollywood. You, sometimes you get managers, you get lawyers, you get agents, you get those people involved and they can really have a, a crazy effect on people's careers. And, and the, the, the major label industry is similar to the, the to the TV and film world in the sense where you have all these executives and that the, their turnover is so great. So like, let's say you're a new executive coming in and there's a band that was signed. Well, you don't want to be responsible for their failure or and you can't take the credit for their success. So yeah. you'd much rather just go, I just want to get you out of the picture here. So I don't have to take the blame if it doesn't go well. You know, I only want giant hits, you know, and that's how they keep their jobs. So, you know, uh, I'm also a huge Clash fan and, uh, you know, I've watched all the documentaries and read all the biographies on, on them. And that's just a, a tragic example of, of probably my favorite band of all time. Like London Calling was was a huge influence on me and, and just how daring that album was to see management just destroy that band. Yeah. And, um, that is bottom line what happened, you know, and, uh, cause you don't go in there and say that and take one side, take the person of one side, you know, and, um, and be against the other main songwriter in the band. It's just, you don't do it. And, yeah, the minute um, the minute Mick was showing the door, that was the end one. That was the beginning of the end. Yeah, yeah, and it's a you know there's definitely parallels that I can draw in my own experience, and uh, from listening to different documentaries and and reading their story, of you know Mick at the time, it's not that he didn't want to tour. He just at that time wanted to take a break. But yeah, he said he goes, yeah, I had a bad attitude, but I, it's not not like I wanted to quit the band or never tour again. I just, at that day, had a bad attitude. You know, I showed up late that day and they'd had enough of it. And they wanted to go on tour and, and, and stuff like that. So uh, it's, it's too bad that in, in those situations that there isn't, a, a, instead of a person who's gonna be drawing the band apart, you need someone there to be like bringing everyone together and say, hey, let's, we got to keep this together at all costs because this is the formula that works. All you guys together is what makes the band great. And if if one person is struggling or having needs an attitude adjustment, you know, like let's work through that. But it's when the people are like, yeah, we don't need him. You know, let's let's move on and uh, get some other people. And it's all about egos, you know. That's why uh, these 
Um, I'm looking up at my bookshelf that are full of music doc, uh, music biographies. And, and uh, um, you know, that's, that's what happens to bands. You know, you can read about it in, in every band out there. It's, it, it gets very difficult as time goes on to uh, keep all the, the moving parts working. And it, it takes, it takes communication and good management. Yeah, and Pennywise, you know, like you've obviously been through your fair share of, you know, tragic death and lineup changes, and it's a testament that you're still going in the format and, and lineup that you are. And, you know, like when you leave, had you kind of had enough of touring or had you almost had, you know, enough of the, the behavior of other members in the band? Because it's like, I know when I, I don't claim to know any of you guys well, but I've, you know, played shows when you're there and, you know, Fletcher's antics are famous and he's an amazing musician and guitar player, but he's also a wild man. Um, and you strike me as somebody who just isn't that at all. Um, and that obviously I imagine can create certain tension. So when you leave, what was the final thing that you were just like, I'm done, I'm checking out for a while. Yeah, it was more like, um, it was more of, we need to take a break. I thought the band after uh, we had just done album tour, album tour, album tour for um, 20 years at that point, you know? Uh, yeah. Uh, you guys were so dependable with that. It was like every two years, there'd be a new Pennywise record without foe. Right. Yeah. And whereas bad religion took a break. So um, uh, Greg could teach fat Mike did, um, me first in the gimme gimme's and, and other things. Tim from Rancid did the interrupters. People were doing different things. And then, yes, very much so. We, we did this one tour that I thought was out of control. I thought the partying was getting too crazy and I didn't want someone else to die from something. And uh, I just felt like, hey man, I, I think I put it, um, the, the last tour was over the top and, and um, they were offering, uh, we, well, we want to go and do the next one. I said, Hey man, I want to take a break. And then it was, uh, F you take your break then for good, you know? And, uh, and then, then that was, uh, uh, a point that we're trying to, uh, stop now, which is emails <laughs> is, uh, it, once you put it out there in emails of, of what your, uh, uh, of your, when you, want to uh lash out at people it, yeah it, for someone like me i i don't come back from that you know when when people start you know insulting people and and uh i think my contribution to the band was enough that i deserved a little more respect than that so i was like all right you know i'll i'll, I'll take a break but um luckily we're We've grown up a little bit since then. <laughs> and, are the other, uh, are any of the other guys married or fathers, or or is it just you? Uh no, Randy uh, and Byron. Uh, Byron was the last. Uh, he, he's got a young son, and Randy's got four kids. So right, right. Um, they understand, you know, uh, what that's all about. But um, do those boys know, cut loose on the road as well? Are they wild? Uh, all of us have our moments, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> have had our times you know um we um and you know that had something to it as uh, as well you know it, it got to a point where we were just being known as this band that would just bring chaos all the time you know and 
it was like, it was to me, it started to overshadow everything that we did, you know, and, um, you know, it's, it's, it's difficult in, in that situation where it's like, Hey, what I've really always enjoyed was writing songs. I love, you know, uh, not, not everyone knows, but like for albums like full circle and straight ahead, I wrote half, if not more of the guitar, uh, the music, not just the lyrics. I wrote, you know, 80, 90% of the lyrics, but I wrote the music as well. So it's like, that was the, the great part of it for me, you know, of, of was writing all these songs. And then those two um, records were amazing as well. Like about time, full circle, straight ahead, that run of three was just unstoppable. Um, such good yeah. memories of all three of those albums, like listening to them growing up when they came out golden you know, time. Yeah, that was that's what was fun is going in the studio for me that and, and that creative process and 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 writing the songs and then um and then but for uh you know other people it was no going on tour this is now is when it's fun you know whereas like I loved and still do love being on stage and playing for our fans and and playing shows and stuff like that. The, the rest of it is work. The, the rest of it is airports and and tour buses and hotels and and there's a waiting, right? Yeah. Well, and then there's there's also two kinds of musicians. There's the ones who party right through it, and then the other ones who like just get through what I have to do to get on stage to make it on stage, and that's you know where the 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 two lines intersect, and and and. It's, you know, over the years, it can be, that's why we have so, so much alcoholism and, and uh, you know, drug abuse and, and all kinds of issues going on and divorces and, and whatnot. And, you know, it's, uh, it's, a, uh, it's not for the faint of heart, this, this uh, uh, punk rock uh, band stuff. But at the same time, you know, I feel like we've put out some, some music that inspired people and that um um and i'm hoping this you know this record that i um i, I just came out with now people that like pennywise over the years can get something different out of it and, and you know because we've always kind of written anthems that were like shout along um sing along stuff to inspire people but this is much more personal and um uh kind of more getting involved in your uh, you know, the, the ideas that are, are really about the cycle of life and, and, you know, you know, let's face it, we're not 21 years old anymore. Yeah. And when, when you get to this age, now you start looking back in your life and being like, it's, uh, nostalgic to see how fast it went and you start losing loved ones, like, like my father and things like this. And, and to be able to put that into music and into, into this album was like, it was very, uh, rewarding for me to finally get this thing out there and and it's it's cool to see the response that it's getting it's amazing and it deserves all the positive response that it's getting and um yeah pennywise for me have always been like a ramones kind of band that you can kind of always you know rely on them for a certain style which is why it was so refreshing to hear this and be like oh wow you know there's plenty more there um to offer and uh, it's it's taken you a while jim but it's uh, <laughs> Uh, is there going to be more? I hope there will be. Yeah, yeah. You know, I I have 
um, so much material and it's really due to my, my family and, uh, some close friends who have been like after me, when are you going to put out these songs? You've got so many different styles and different things going on. And there's, there's one song that I didn't put on the record, but I would, it's about my daughters and I wrote it when they were fairly young and they would, I would play it. And it was all, the song was about me saying that I'll, I'll always be there for you. Even when you hate me and you're mad at me for whatever reason, I'm always going to be there. And they would, I would play it and they would run and go cry in their bedrooms because it was like, they're wow. like, we're never going to leave you dad. Like, don't, don't write that sad song. But I, I have a, a lot of songs like that that are very emotional and, and, Pennywise has kind of always been a, a, uh, oh, look at that. Oh, wait, can't see it. Epitaph Records. There you go. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> um, That'll be for your next interview, probably. <laughs> have you got another one straight after me? Uh, no, no, no. We, we, uh, we just have to do some biz. But, got you, uh, got you. I'll get him back. I'll get him back. I won't uh, keep you for too much longer, mate. Nice one. Yeah. Yeah. But, <laughs> yeah. So I've got all these, uh, I've got all these, um, these songs, literally, uh, boxes of cassette tapes that I need to go through and just remember some of these songs I did, but yeah, I, I feel like I'm going to keep doing this. Um, I wanted this first one to come out, which is uh, something I can't, uh impressive enough how important ted hutt the producer was of the record uh and that i was after him for years to listen to my songs and and uh and and didn't want to do this record with anyone but ted and the work that he's done with gaslight anthem and dropkick murphy's and foggy molly and and just all these great bands um that uh, i love and, and um you know old crow medicine show like all this really cool rootsy stuff um he was so key in making this album what it is you know and worked with me on the arrangements and made sure i had the best takes and um just added flavors and vintage sounds and you know <clears throat> uh, that's not always easy i know from doing albums in the past uh you know that's a relationship that's very important as well and we've had some very contentious times in the studio and Pennywise of getting the songs to tape. And uh, this experience was just absolutely perfect, you know, and just a really fun time. And we, we banged it out pretty quickly. And, and um, uh, Ted was very responsible for shaping the sound of the record. It sounds amazing. You've got some cool players on there as well. You've got Dave from Social D and, you got Joe from the Boss Tones, who I didn't know until chatting to Greg from the Souls that he wrote "Lean on Sheena." That was his song, and that yeah. was that was actually Joe Sib and Ted that were like, "We should cover this and and make it a Souls track." And love that. And yeah, man, there's there's who's doing all the horns on the album? Is that the Caddies guys or the Mariachi or Bronx guys? Would that be anybody I know? Yeah, it's a guy named Glenn who's a uh, um, yeah he's in Royal Crown, right? I believe. Yep. And um, uh, he was great at having Connor on strings and Glenn and and uh, and Joe has a uh, he wrote uh, Lean on Sheena for his band Avoid One Thing, who I was a big fan of and contacted him when that album came out and told him that and 
we had talked about working on songs at some point and um just a, a huge fan of them we did a work tour with mighty mighty Boston's and and became good friends with those guys and 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 just have uh and david hidalgo from is just from uh, a family of royalty here in los angeles but yeah lost uh, lobos and that yeah yeah you know, so, i've told you dave a couple of times with the bronx and the mariachi el bronx and yeah, he's um, every drummer the Bronx have had have always been amazing, whether it's Joey C, him, Jorma. But he has a very compact, unique, powerful, yet groove orientated style, doesn't he? He's amazing. You know what? There's there's guys out there that are very much playing the Bill Stevenson uh, style, mm-hmm. kind of bigger dudes. Yep. But they're so powerful. It's all wrists. Yeah. You, know, yeah, you yeah. see there's other drummers where their whole body gets into it and they're just. They're just, you know, it. It's like, you know, they're uh, at a football game. They're like, they're all over the place. Mm-hmm. But uh, then there's other guys like that. It, it's just all in the wrist. But they're, man, they're as powerful as ever. And their sense of timing is just, you know, I've always said about Bill Stevenson, but um, the drummer for Rise Against is the same way. Um, you know, it's like they they have so much power and their timing is impeccable you know it's yeah. just it's crazy to watch and so but to, to be honest with you it was all ted you know I, I came into this album with about 25 songs and i said here they are you decide which ones that i should record and you decide who's going to play on what and I had known David from touring with him and he's a big Dodgers fan. So we, we bonded when the Dodgers lost the world series on a tour in Australia once before, but you know, I, I totally left it up to Ted on who to get and he just knew all the right people. And, um, you know, and, and that was another experience to have strings and horns on, uh, on my album was such a trip, you know, to, to have all this instrumentation and, and added things. Whereas, you know, every Pennywise album has been drums, bass, guitar, and and so and lots of woes, uh, <laughs> lots of backing vocals, and so yeah, the, a song like "I Feel Like the Sun," which is the last song I wrote before the album. Uh, Another to, one of my absolute favorites, like that one. Um, yeah, like just the, well, the first three, bang, 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 so yeah. good. A lot of people mentioned hello again as well. That was one of the, the, the first standouts for, for wanting to do the record. And um, and to create that horn part, I always knew I wanted the horn to go da, 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 after uh, the part in the chorus. But then um, it came time for there to be a guitar lead, but it was going to be a horn lead. And so we just had Glenn just trying different things and um, uh, we ended up patching together this thing that sounds like Chet Baker, yeah. you know, and, and right after I heard that horn solo, I went, this song just went from 10th on the album to first or second, because I was just really proud of, of that song and how it came together. And I actually have video of me out in the desert where I was sitting there messing with some chords and then the lyrics just came to me and i turned on my iphone and said i better record that really quickly because that sounded pretty good and i and i recorded me like the second it came to me so hopefully down the line i can post some of these videos i have of of the the early step of the of the of writing the songs and stuff like that but uh 
yeah, all in all, it was a really, really cool experience from top to bottom, you know, writing the songs to going through the everything we went through the last year and getting the album out and and uh, and now letting everyone hear it. It's been pretty rewarding. Yeah, you've had a cool year, all things considered. Um, somebody I've kind of grown a little bit close to, I've had her on this podcast and another one that I do, is Emily, Emily Nielsen from Punk Rock and Paintbrushes. Obviously, I know about your involvement in that project and have seen the book, not in physical form, but Emily sent me a PDF version, which I flicked through and, and thoroughly enjoyed. And what a cool community she's building with that and, and with everybody involved from the skaters to all the musicians to you know even like rappers um it's really cool and i think that has so much potential to grow and grow and grow uh, and that must have been another fun thing to kind of alleviate some of that lockdown boredom and 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 really express yourself in another like different lane you know it was and uh you're absolutely right emily's brought together all these people who a lot of us know each other but it's not like we're all on some group chat and talk all the time you know yeah. i've done i've done tons of shows with Steve Caballero, the most legendary skater of all time, uh, amongst him and uh, a small group of others who were so influential and played music with them. But it wasn't until Emily brought us together to uh, now I'm talking to Steve all the time. And, and I sang on the urethane record and, you know, doing all kinds of cool stuff. So she is building this community of people um, and giving them an outlet for a new kind of expression. And, um, now I'm seeing more and more people doing it. I saw Jason DeVore of Authority Zero has been doing artwork with his lyrics, which is really cool. And, and it's just a, another form of expression. And I'm, uh, I'm uh, working with a festival here that's a little more mainstream than punk rock, but it's, it's in the South Bay, but it's called the Beach Life Festival. And we had Emily out for that. We had, we had Jane's Addiction and Cage the Elephant and all these. Say Ferris play that one. I know Monique. I think I remember seeing them on the bill. Yeah. Yeah. Say Ferris played. And we had on my acoustic stage, we had the speakeasy stage. We had Trevor Keith from Face to Face, Jason DeVore, Jason Cruz from Strung Out, you know, had, had Steve and his band. So had a cool little thing there. And we had Emily down and, brought all of her amazing art and people doing surfboard art. And, and uh, I swear that area of the festival was probably where most of the people hung out the whole time, you know? So she's a busy uh, lady, you know, she's, she's doing a lot of festivals, but I can see why she's just done such an amazing job of uh, putting this whole art festival on and adding a new dimension to music festivals. Like it's like going to music festival, but having a, a killer art show going on at the same time so no brainer yeah i'm gonna try and see if i can get her over to the uk to slam dunk next year my friends run that festival i know you guys have just been announced to it um so it'd be great to see you there um i think i'll let you go man i've kept you for more than long enough but jim this has been awesome i've admired your band from afar for many many years and it's been really cool to finally sit down and and connect with you over the zoom medium and and pick your brain and stuff and um yeah maybe if you've got time let's look to do a part two at slam dunk when you're over but if not at the very least it'll be good to you know say hello and shake your hand and and hang out for a bit in person but thanks man and congratulations on this beautiful amazing solo album i absolutely love it so yeah keep up and let's have some more of them thank you and tell a friend <laughs> hopefully a few will hear this
And hopefully, uh, yeah, they'll get their hands on it. I love it. And I can't, if you like Pennywise, even if you don't like Pennywise, just try this out. I think you'll love it if you just like good songs. It's um, it's great. But yeah, man, I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. And uh, have a good Christmas and everything. And I'll see you, hopefully, <laughs> unless yeah. some more shit comes up. I'll see you in May uh, of next year over here for Slam Dunk. Excellent. Thank you so much. And uh, yes, we'll see you at Slam Dunk. Travel trend, present, best and beyond Though you weren't with us too long That was the most precious thing we could lose While you were here, the fun was never ending Not a minute was only beginning deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.